3: ACAST.com.
2: Hello listeners, I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Farm Policy and your host of Farm Policy Playlist. Each week we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. And this week, we're excited to feature the premiere episode of CNN's newest podcast, Tug of War, with their chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. The series takes you out onto the streets amidst the global struggle for democracy. Hear from ordinary people in Afghanistan, Myanmar and Russia, who are locked in a David and Goliath struggle for freedom. In just a minute, we are going to play the first episode, but first, I spoke to Clarissa about the series and on her recent reporting from Afghanistan amidst the Taliban advance. Congrats on an incredible podcast. I listened to the first episode last night and it is I don't even it's so rich in sound. I really felt like I was in Kabul. And you know, I'd watched your 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 reports and your dispatches, and I think it just brings like another level hearing it and that kind of rich audio sound. Tug of war is all about this this global struggle for democracy. And I mean, I was reading a Freedom House report yesterday. You know, which which said the democracy has been steadily on decline for the past fifteen years. I'm wondering why why now, why in this moment did did you and your colleagues at CNN decide to decide to make a podcast?
4: Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting because I I basically had read a similar that said that for the first time since 2001 there are now more autocracies than democracies. Hmm. And that just was so striking to me. I'm like 20 years on, like what's happened in the last 20 years that we've seen this huge pendulum shift. And and I was thinking about the Arab Spring and obviously the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the U.S. is standing and the U.S. is kind of retreat from the global stage and, or at least the perceived retreat of the U.S. from the global stage. And I just sort of became fascinated with, you know, why this was happening, how this was happening, what it looked like, but not just in terms of the rise of the autocracies, but I was also very interested in the fact that there is also a counter to that, which is a real growth in these sort of grassroots pro-democracy or, you know, pro-freedom movements uh, or resistance movements around the world and to me, that is something that really resonates with something I've seen a lot over the years reporting mm-hmm. ordinary people engaging in extraordinary acts of courage and risking everything with very little sense of a real payoff or, you know, often it seems like a sort of David and Goliath dynamic in these situations. And I just became so intrigued and, and and compelled to try to understand more about why people engage in these kinds of acts of courage and what motivates them. The Afghanistan episode was a little bit different than some of the other episodes, because obviously, mm-hmm. while we were there, shooting these other stories and shooting something for the podcast, this huge historical moment kind of unfolded before our very eyes. And so it just incorporates a lot of the sort of the moment um, yeah. as it was unfolding. But still, you found people who are out there still protesting against the Taliban in pretty extraordinary circumstances where it really doesn't make much sense for them on a certain level to do that when you think of how the odds are stacked against them.
2: That's something that's always fascinated me is, is these people who Go to such incredible lengths and are so brave, standing up against these regimes. Like when you say the odds are are stacked against them, and you know the example that comes to mind most prominently is of course Navalny, who you interviewed mm. right before when he, he went back to Russia, knowing what was in store for him, knowing that they had already tried to kill him. What motivates these people? How, I mean, I kind of have just. Concluded that they are just a slightly different mm. type of human than I am. That I would, I could never be that
4: incredibly brave. But, but do you have any insight? I mean, what? How do they get to that level? And, and well, I think Navalny is something of an anomaly in that he is, he's an extraordinary character. Mm-hmm. And and I, I don't mean that in a sort of good way or a bad way. It's just yeah. a statement of fact. And when you're in his presence and you spend time with him and you see the way he thinks and the risks he takes and he has this absolutely innate self-conviction that I really haven't come across that often before. Mm. He's not somebody who engages that much in compromise. It's, he has his values. He has his ideals. Um, he can be pragmatic, but he doesn't take no for an answer. So he's an unusual and kind of extreme example, mm. if you like, of this sort of fighter resister or whatever, however you would like to categorize it. Some of the other people that we met and, and, and spend time with and saw are, are very different. They are much more normal. And if you ask them logically, if they're willing to die for something, they will probably tell you no. Mm -hmm. And yet they are still engaged in these acts of, 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 true courage and bravery I think that often there's a sort of safety in numbers feeling whereby once people have a sense that they have the support of a community and that their voice is powerful, that can become a very intoxicating thing. And, you know, one of the other episodes we look, we look at Myanmar, but we also look at Syria because Syria was sort of, I guess, in some ways like the death of a revolution or the death of an uprising or a resistance movement. But there's this wonderful moment where this media activist is talking about the first protests that they went on. And he said, you know, of course they had never been able to protest before, he said it was like a bird being allowed out of its cage and being able to sing and just having this moment of realizing your power and the potency that comes with standing for something and standing in unison and solidarity with some kind of a movement and how utterly and intoxicating and exciting and thrilling that was. And what part of what is fascinating to me about it is that not everybody who's engaged in it is extraordinary. There are ordinary people as well doing very courageous things. And that's, that's seemingly like very, I think, easy to access for people, even as we take a lot of stuff for granted and can't imagine ourselves putting our necks out on the line. A lot of these characters are, I think, relatable.
2: So when I was listening to the first episode, you know, which follows your reporting in Afghanistan and, and, and the collapse of the Afghan government. It sounds like the audio is a mix of some of your, 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 your standups and your kind of mm. pieces to camera, but it also sounded at moments, you know, it kind of opens at the beginning with you are on a roof and there's, mm. you know, people shouting in the streets of Kabul that, that you're kind of on your own with, with a microphone. I'm just, you know, as a journalist, I'm curious, mm. like how, was that a new thing for you to have to think about a podcast kind of audio radio component in addition to the hundreds of hundreds of other things that you're juggling in that moment
4: yeah it, it was a new thing but I have to say I really love it hmm. because once you get used to it it's just and I just do them on my phone as 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 voice notes there's such an intimacy in that moment yeah. I'm literally whispering in your ear and telling you what I'm seeing and feeling and experiencing and smelling and you know that is real fundamental, basic storytelling. And it's so different from the kind of storytelling we do in front of the camera where it's like, I am presenting to you. I am talking with authority to you and making complex themes digestible. This is like good old fashioned storytelling. Like, check this out. This is what I'm seeing right now. And I think for a listener and you, you realize this is like the, the genius of podcasts, you do feel much more transported as a result, Mm -hmm. even though you don't have the medium of the visuals to help you go on the journey. You're like tucked in my pocket with me, like going on this trip and I'm talking to you the whole way through it. Um, And that intimacy and that kind of extra handholding, if you like, Mm -hmm. I think really enables people to get a much better, deeper sense of, of what it actually feels like to be in these places. And that, to me, you know, as someone who loves telling stories, is just so exciting.
2: That was CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. And here now is episode one of Tug of War,
4: Afghanistan. We're at uh, the safe house where we're staying in Kabul. You can hear a loud siren in the background. That's because there was just a fairly significant explosion. We're standing on the roof. We can see a plume of smoke above a building in the distance. It's nighttime here. It's about 5 to 8. Welcome to Afghanistan. It's August third, 2021 our first night in Kabul. We were there to cover the withdrawal of U.S. troops after 20 years in Afghanistan. Suddenly, it was like the Afghan government had lost its insurance policy. The Taliban had begun a lightning-fast offensive across the country. In the capital, they started an assassination campaign. This car bomb went off outside the house of the acting defense minister. He wasn't killed, but it was a calling card. Standing there on the roof in the dark, we hear something else. I'm not sure if you can hear right now, but the city is literally echoing with the cries of people. They're chanting "Allahu Akbar," which means "God is the greatest." But in this context, they're they're chanting it across the city as an affirmation of support for the Afghan security forces. I don't think I've ever heard anything like this in my time in Afghanistan. It's surreal, it's dark up here on the rooftop and I can't see anyone. But all around I can just hear their voices echoing across the city. It's a powerful symbol of defiance. The people of Kabul literally crying out that they don't want the Taliban. I'm Clarissa Ward, CNN's chief international correspondent. For more than 15 years, I've been reporting on conflict, terrorism, on the unequal battles between the powerful and the powerless. I've witnessed a lot of tragedy, but also great acts of courage. That night, it was like a call to arms, a last desperate rallying cry. But it came far too late. The Taliban would be in control of Kabul just 10 days later. This is a site I honestly thought I would never see. Scores of Taliban fighters, and just behind us, the U.S. Embassy compound.
3: It's a heartbreak. It's the worst heartbreak of my life.
4: I'm concerned for my daughters and all
0: the girls of Afghanistan. I don't want history to repeat itself on them very brutally.
4: America's presence in Afghanistan was always polarizing. To some, the U.S. occupation was responsible for 20 years of war, arbitrary detentions, corrupt and ineffective government. But for many others, especially women and people living in urban areas, the country had become a better place since the Taliban had been ousted after 9-11, more tolerant, more connected to the outside world, with a vibrant independent media. Now, two decades later, those gains hang by a thread. The Taliban are back. Afghanistan is just the latest stage for a struggle that's playing out around the world. A struggle where basic freedoms, the sort that we perhaps take for granted, are not just under threat. They're being snuffed out ruthlessly. The new autocrats hold sway in Russia, Myanmar, Nicaragua, in fact, in dozens of countries. I read a report recently that said that just one in seven people now live in a true democracy. No question, authoritarians are on the rise. But a new generation of resistance is also emerging, fighting for its rights, unwilling to give up hope for the future. <inaudible> Over the next six episodes, I'll take you around the world to witness this struggle up close. I'll meet those risking everything to cling to their freedoms, and I'll confront those in power who are trying to silence them. This is Tug of War, Episode 1, Afghanistan. Afghanistan. It's August 5th, 2021, less than two weeks before the fall of Kabul. From the capital, we travel to Kandahar, Afghanistan's second largest city and the spiritual homeland of the Taliban. If Kandahar falls, then Kabul becomes very vulnerable. The Taliban have closed in on the city. It's basically surrounded. With American troops leaving, Afghan soldiers are now on their own and they cannot afford to lose this fight. I'm sitting in the back of an armored vehicle. I'm wearing a helmet and a bulletproof vest. The Afghan military has offered to take our crew to the front lines in the west of the city. The minute we arrive, we hear gunfire going off in the compound. This used to be a wedding hall. Now it's the front line position. Apart from the sound of gunfire, it's eerily quiet in this former ballroom. There are banquet chairs stacked up in the middle, coated in thick layers of dust. The soldiers tell us that just across the street, Taliban snipers are hiding in civilians' homes and firing at the commandos day and night. The men want to show us something on the roof. You can actually see the Taliban flag just over on the mountaintop there.
1: They're in those houses.
4: Snipers. Let's go back down.
1: dangerous. Yeah,
4: I get it. Very dangerous here. But talking to the soldiers, I don't really sense their fear or anxiety. Instead, they seem pretty relaxed. They say they're confident that they'll be able to hold the line against the Taliban. How do you feel about the way the U.S. forces are leaving?
1: We face some problems,
0: their uh, air strike, air support. But uh, this is our uh, country. We have to protect it.
4: The Taliban have already taken much of the province and are making gains around the city every day. But these soldiers are seemingly assured how quickly things would change.
2: The Taliban has taken two more major prizes as their advance accelerates.
4: Just a week after our visit to Kandahar, the city fell. I wondered what had happened to those soldiers, so sure they could beat back the Taliban. I messaged one of them on WhatsApp and asked, What happened to you? He replied right away, We left. The fall of Kandahar was, to many Afghans, a haunting reminder of how the Taliban came to power in the 1990s.
1: Out of nowhere, it seems, a mystery army of Islamic fundamentalists calling themselves the Taliban has swept with lightning speed through this country right into this capital, Kabul. The The Taliban's
4: version of Sharia in the 90s was medieval. There were violent public punishments, Here's what one Taliban governor told CNN at the time.
1: We're trying to form the same government the Prophet Muhammad established 1,400 years ago, and we will do it. The Holy Quran says whenever you catch a thief, cut off his hand and execute a murderer. It's God's order.
4: Women lost almost all of their rights. They were forced to cover themselves in burqas from head to toe. They couldn't go to school or to work. They were married, young, and basically treated like property. People who lived through it still remember how scary it was.
3: I don't remember anyone we met in Kabul at that time being happy.
4: That's Sharzad Akbar. She's the head of Afghanistan's Independent Human Rights Commission. We're at her office in Kabul. She tells us she was just a child when the Taliban took over. People panicked, people tried
3: to flee Afghanistan and everyone who was left there had no no hope of a better future. Everything seemed bleak. Sharzad remembers
4: how simple pleasures were stifled.
3: I loved reading novels and they weren't as accessible as they were before because Taliban were pro-religious books but not much else. We were always nervous when we were listening to music even at home. All I remember is all the all the things I couldn't do, and we couldn't do.
4: Now, Sharzad feels that sense of suffocation again as the Taliban sweep through one province after another. When we meet, the Taliban are just a few miles from Kabul. And it just came too quick. And I just, I'm caught by surprise. Do you feel like the Taliban might come back again to Kabul now? Are you prepared for that?
3: I don't know what prepared really means. For the past 20 years, not just me, millions of Afghans, we have, we have tried to chart a different path for ourselves and we are possible for our country and for our people.
4: For sure, life in Afghanistan was not perfect. But for a woman like Sharzad, the previous 20 years had seen real progress. Women could be educated and work, They could walk down the street without a male companion. Now she fears those hard-won freedoms are about to evaporate.
3: It's the worst heartbreak of my life, is what I'm experiencing now. I have lost my father. I have lost close friends to violence. I have lost um, colleagues. And I have experienced a lot of heartbreak. Uh, This is just a different level of heartbreak.
4: You're making me emotional, sorry. Um, sorry. I'm so t- tired as well. Sorry, forgive me. Mm. So I'm sorry, I just... No, but it is, it, I think, like, it's, it's heartbreak, as you say. Um, so, do you know a lot of people who are leaving the country now?
3: Yes, and I never thought I'd do this, but I have been encouraging people to leave. No woman's life is gonna be better. I mean, yes, you know, hopefully the bloodshed would stop. But Afghan women deserve more. They deserve to live, not just to survive. And in any scenario that I can imagine, it's just gonna be survival, at least for a while.
4: I wanna know if time has changed the Taliban if the fears of someone like Sharzad are justified. The group says it's more mature and pragmatic than before. But is that really true? To answer that question, we drive 100 miles from Kabul to Ghazni province to meet a man called Malavi Kamal. He's the Taliban governor for the province. He's sitting on the floor of the mosque with an AK-47 by his side, surrounded by other Taliban members. A lot of people are concerned that if the Taliban takes power again, women's rights will move backwards, that there will be a a sort of return to this very medieval interpretation of Sharia law. How can you guarantee that women's rights will be protected?
1: I would tell you and to the entire world that uh, we will give the women rights uh, according to Sharia law.
4: In other words, according to the Taliban's very strict interpretation of Islamic law. That night, we stay over in the home of a local Ghazni family. When we arrive, our hosts are getting ready for dinner. The girls go around washing everybody's hands. They pour the water over your hands above a silver bowl. The house we're in is sort of structured as a compound within a compound. The internal ring is just for women and children. A lot of the women in these areas hardly ever leave the compound, which is difficult for someone in the West to wrap their head around, but here it's a way of life. After dinner, I try to chat with the women and children. How old are you? Kem Omrik. At the. At the. Show me. Eight. You're eight. And how old are you? Five? It's a slightly strange scene because I don't speak any Dari or Pashto. And everyone's being very lovely and welcoming, but it is a little tricky to communicate. Women here lead busy lives, raising many children and feeding the whole family. Their day starts at four thirty with the fajr dawn prayer. Then they bake bread, make tea, sweep the courtyards, look after the children and the livestock. Just then, a man walks in. He's young, in his early twenties, and he's wearing glasses and a turban. Your husband? He's yeah. <laughs> my mother. Oh, you speak English? Oh, mashallah. This is your
1: mother. Yes.
4: Oh my gosh, you look so young.
1: <laughs> Mashallah.
4: His name is Sabatala, and he tells me he works at a gas station. To my surprise, I learned that Sabatla's mother is about the same age as I am 40? 40, no. Same as me. You have 10 children, I have two. <laughs> <laughs> he says that this is a Taliban town, and people are happy here now that the Americans have left. One of his brothers is a fighter with the group. In fact, in many rural areas, the Taliban have a lot of support. They're seen as being able to deliver swift, if brutal, justice, unlike the Afghan government, which is crippled by corruption. The government drops bombs and creates trouble. Where there are Taliban, there is no trouble. Now that the
0: Taliban are here, there's security. No bombs, no airplanes, no tanks.
4: After years of fighting, many Afghans just want the war to stop. It doesn't matter who's in charge, as long as people aren't dying anymore. And if the Taliban can bring that, then that's good enough. In terms of education, Sabatala tells me only boys get to go to regular school. Girls just go to religious school. The girls, your sisters, will they go to school? No. No. Why?
1: Taliban.
4: Taliban. This,
1: this is not good. Go to the school. It's mm. not good.
4: Mm. A lot of Afghan women outside the big cities have never known individual freedoms, education, or careers. And talking to them, I get the sense that they don't even really think about such things. Their lives are prescribed before they're even teenagers. It's mostly women like Sharzad Akbar in cities like Kabul who go to university and who have jobs and who are now so fearful of what will happen to them as the Taliban
1: close in on Kabul. The insurgents have taken up to 10 regional capitals and are closing in on more.
2: The terror group now has 15 provinces in their
4: control.
1: The Taliban are now thought to control two thirds of the country only weeks
0: after the complete withdrawal of the American troops.
4: U.S. intelligence sources are now predicting that Kabul will be surrounded by Taliban forces in 30 to 60 days, but that will prove hopelessly optimistic. When we come back. They're just chanting death to America, but they seem friendly at the same time. It's utterly bizarre. The Taliban march into Kabul.
2: Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with
1: Coleman. I think that with country is in flames already, we are headed toward the end of the American project. The
2: ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind.
4: This is Tug of War. I'm Clarissa Ward. On the morning of August 16th, 2021, Kabul wakes up to a new reality, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. In a matter of hours, with hardly a shot fired, the Taliban had taken over the capital. President Ashraf Ghani had fled into the night. As soon as we step out onto the streets, it's clear that the Taliban are in charge. This is a sight I honestly thought I would never see. Scores of Taliban fighters, and just behind us, the U.S. Embassy compound. The mood on the street is tense, but also oddly celebratory. Taliban fighters basking in their victories stand around. People come up to them and ask for selfies and take photographs. Uh, can I ask you how it feels to be standing here in front of the U.S. Embassy?
1: We are very happy and very excited uh, that we have the
0: victory.
4: The crowd starts chanting "Allahu Akbar," which means God is greatest. Some of them are also shouting "Amarg al-America." They're just chanting, death to America, but they seem friendly at the same time. It's utterly bizarre. Many in Kabul, though, are just in shock, unable to process their new reality.
1: Actually, I feel nothing right now. We want peace. Uh, We are tired of this uh, ongoing war.
4: What does the future look like to you now?
1: You know, uh, I cannot predict even in seconds right now, and I can't predict even minutes right now. Uh, so that's why I don't know what will, uh, uh, what will happen tomorrow and what will happen after.
4: Others are panicking, petrified at the prospect of Taliban rule.
1: Yesterday, I have lost everything. Like, I, I, I don't feel secure in here.
4: You're afraid?
1: Yeah, I'm afraid. I'm afraid
3: from everything. This is the big, big problem for us.
4: It's a strange feeling to be one of the very few women walking around. Just last week, women in Kabul were out and about, going to work, to the market. Today, though, many of them are staying home, too afraid to go out, waiting to see what tomorrow will bring. We walk past a beauty salon. Yesterday, there were pictures of women's faces outside the store, but today, those pictures have been hurriedly painted over, the women's faces erased. In a market, we come across a burqa store. We approach the vendor who's standing in front of racks filled with identical gray-blue burkas. Hi, Assalamu alaikum. Hi, how are you? How are sales? Are you selling a lot of burkas at the moment?
1: Yeah, it was good, but now it's more more sales now, much better. Than.
4: Why do you think you're selling more burkas right now?
1: Because the tal- Taliban took over and all the women are afraid. So that's why they are all coming and buying burkas.
4: The thing is, the Taliban haven't even issued any official directives yet, but in a sense, they don't have to already people, especially the older generation, are policing their own behavior. The memory and the fear of the old Taliban is still clear in their minds. August 18th, day three of Taliban rule. Okay, she's not answering. Hold on. Hi, Fauzia. It's Clarissa from CNN. We are... I think very close to your home. I think I might have found your house, but can you tell me what color your gate is? Yeah, it's got to be there where the Taliban were. Fauzia Kofi has been fighting for women's rights since the Taliban first came to power in the 1990s. She's a member of parliament and a delegate for the Afghan government in peace talks with the Taliban. Or rather, she was. Hi. How are you? It's so Good nice to meet you. you. Oh my gosh. How are you doing? Pleasure. Kufi is basically under house arrest, and there are several Taliban fighters standing outside her gate. They search my bag before letting me in. There's Taliban fighters outside your door. What are they doing there?
0: I haven't really communicated with them. They have been here for two days. We haven't asked them. Um, I don't know why they are there outside.
4: Kufi knows the Taliban, particularly after the time she spent across the table from them at peace talks. I want to know what she thinks about the claims they keep making that this time round will be different, that they'll be more inclusive and tolerant, that women will be treated better than before. I have seen
0: and I have heard reports that in some provinces uh, they do not let women go out without burqa. They do not let women go out without male companion. So I think they have to really make sure that they assure people that they have changed in practice, not in word. Do you believe they've changed? From what I see, it's very hard to trust.
4: But Kufi doesn't think the future of Afghanistan will be decided solely by the Taliban. They still have to contend with the people they're ruling, especially in Kabul, which is not their home turf. I know for sure that we will resist
0: any oppression that will take Afghanistan back to where it was 20 years back.
4: And they are resisting. In the weeks since the Taliban takeover, small groups of women took to the streets to demand the right to work and to go to college. They risked whips and sticks to make their voices heard.
0: I have been claiming this for uh, years now that Afghanistan is transformed. And when I say transformed, it's not about the school buildings that I'm talking about, the infrastructure that we have managed to build, but it's about this generation transformation. I
4: don't think anybody will be able to oppress those women to stay home. But already so many Afghans are voting with their feet, desperate to leave the country. After the break, chaos at the airport. Welcome back to Tug of War. I'm Clarissa Ward. The Taliban want to show that they can provide law and order, but they also understand that a lot of people are very frightened of them, which is why they've issued a blanket amnesty, essentially saying there will be no retribution for people who spoke out against them in the past or who worked with the Americans. But a lot of people don't buy that promise. So as soon as Kabul falls, they panic. Thousands flock to the airport, hoping to get on an evacuation flight before it's too late. The streets around the airport are now completely choked with traffic. And there are huge crowds of people lining up, pushing, pleading to try and get inside. Let me try to explain to you the situation where we are. It's very hectic. You can probably hear those gunshots. We're about 200 yards, even less than 200 yards away from the entrance to the Kabul airport. Uh, There are Taliban fighters all around. You just hear the gunfire is pretty much constant. The Taliban have been tasked with providing security outside the airport. So they've set up checkpoints all around. And they're trying to keep the crowds back, firing shots into the air. They're wielding truncheons and whips, apparently trying to keep order. As I'm reporting live on CNN's morning show, a big crowd gathers around me. And most of these people let me ask you sir are you waiting here to get out or what are you doing here Yeah yeah the most of the people they are traveling here Yeah
3: they're working with the american right they all have the documents for the recommendations everything Right the Joe Biden everyday they announced Yeah we take him to the america but they are liars. So, so in what's this,
4: your message to America right it's now? It's our
3: message to America. We help the America people. So that's their jobs to help now, right now. Here, there's a very bad situation. If someone
4: more and more people come forward, they flash green cards, their emails, their visas, hoping desperately that their pleas will be heard by the U.S. government. Honestly, it's hard for me to look them in the eye because I don't have any answers for them. We cross the street to get closer to the Taliban checkpoint. A couple of fighters notice us and start coming towards us. One of them is visibly upset, and he doesn't want to talk to a woman. Can I ask you a question? Excuse uh, me? She, he says first. Cover my face? Cover. Okay. Cover my face. He told me to cover my face he couldn't even talk to me. I noticed that the fighter appears to be high. He's chewing something, I don't know what, and his eyes are glazed. He's sort of revved up in a way that makes it really difficult to have a normal conversation with him. He starts cursing America. My Afghan colleague, Najibullah Qureshi, who we call Naj, warns me to back off.
1: Okay, keep keep walking. please. 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 Yeah.
4: These Taliban fighters are a little upset with us. Suddenly, things escalate. The Taliban fighter pushes forward through the crowd. He's taken the safety off his weapon and he's holding it up in the air.
1: Stay behind him, stay behind him, stay behind him.
4: My producer Brent Swales yells at me to watch out. We decide to leave and head for the car, but suddenly, another two fighters come running towards us. One of them raises his rifle butt in the air. He's about to strike Brent. Brent ducks down to protect his head. (laughs) Eventually, Naj is able to calm them down, and they back off we escape. Let's get to the car now. Everyone attacking on you. (laughs) That's nervous laughter. But later, Naj tells us we could have been killed. Even now, when I think about what happened, I feel a pit in my stomach. Less than a week after their takeover, the Taliban are already showing their true colors. And local journalists get it much worse, with severe beatings and whippings. The idea that Taliban rule can cope with dissent, that any of the old freedoms will survive, is fading fast. As the week draws on, it's getting increasingly difficult for people to leave the country. There are no civilian flights and few safe ways of getting into the airport. Americans are being urged to leave immediately, and that includes us. We make a plan to try to leave on Friday and get on one of the evacuation flights that the U.S. has been organizing. We call our translator Shafi to see if he wants to try his luck and come with us. Shafi used to work for the U.S. military. He'd applied for a visa but never heard back.
0: The U.S. just left us behind. We stood with them. We thought that that we will get a democracy, the freedom, the education, but recently everything
1: is destroyed.
4: When we call him, Shafi doesn't even ask what country we're going to. He's at our door in less than half an hour, with nothing but a briefcase full of papers that show his military work. So it's uh, just after five in the morning, and we are getting ready to leave here and try our luck getting to the airport. There was already a crowd forming at the gate by the time we got there. My heart was pounding. How would we all push through? So we just managed to get into the airport. I I honestly can't even begin to describe the scene. So many people just crushing and pushing each other and screaming and children shrieking and, ugh. It's just awful. It's just absolutely awful. And, um... It's just, like, so much desperation and no information for people. Lack of clarity about the whole process. Over the next six hours, we're funneled through a series of endless checkpoints. It's a blisteringly hot day. And there are lots of families trying to get out. We see soldiers handing them little strips of cardboard to try to fan their babies and protect them from the sun. Shafi, how are you feeling?
0: I'm glad to get inside, but uh, honestly I don't feel good because you saw the situation, you saw the people, you saw the outside situation, that how disaster, how horrible is that.
4: How are you feeling about, you know, embarking on a new life as a refugee?
0: Yeah, I'm a little bit nervous, but I'm glad that I'm getting to our safety. I don't think we are safe here. Last night I was, I didn't slept because I was uh, wondering if I didn't get into the airport and what, what shall I do, what will I do? And so I'm glad and hopefully my new life will bring me happiness
2: to me. Thanks.
4: It's 3 a.m. on Saturday by the time we actually managed to get on a plane. It's a military C-17 that doesn't have any seats, just a huge, cold cargo bay. There are 300 of us, roughly, and we all get packed in, standing, and then we're instructed to sit on the floor at the same time, so there's enough space for everybody to sit. Heading home... I feel immense guilt. I get to walk away, get on this plane, go back to my family, my home. It's too loud to talk, but I can see Shafi is getting emotional. He's grateful to be out, but what next? I imagine a lot of the Afghans on the plane feel the same way. This bizarre mixture, the relief of leaving, knowing you're beyond fortunate to escape, but then, a sense of abandoning your home and a way of life. Shafi risked his life to work with the Americans. He bought into the idea of democracy. Sharzad Akbar and Fauzia Kufi did too. And because of that, all three are now forced to flee. The Taliban may bring security to Afghanistan with their draconian methods, but beyond that, Afghans seem to have little to look forward to. Basic freedoms, reading what you want, playing music, voicing an opinion, all seem in grave danger. Afghanistan's 20-year experiment with democracy, elections, the idea of choice, is all but over.
2: And that was episode one of Tug of War... Afghanistan. Catch the other five episodes as they come out weekly this fall. My thanks to Clarissa Ward and the audio team at CNN for sharing the episode with us. That's all for foreign policy playlist this week. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at farmpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Simone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron.
0: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. ACAST.COM